This is The Mystical Positivist, a radio show dedicated to the application of reason in the pursuit of spiritual practice and development. It consists of commentary, book reviews, interviews, and discussion in and around the local and larger spiritual community. The thesis of the show is that rationality is in no way the antithesis of deep mystical experience. In fact, we assert that it is a necessary ally. I'm your host, Stuart Goodnick. Joining me in the following presentation is my co-host, Dr. Robert Schmidt. Rob is the director of Taya Meditation Center and founder with myself and Jim Wilson of Mini Rivers Books and Tea in Sebastopol, California. This week on the show, we present a pre-recorded conversation with Anne Sweet, a Sydney-based artist and spiritual exemplar of living in the world from a point of view of transcendence. Of her spiritual life, she writes, I had a change of identity about 15 years ago. This was very liberating for me, but I wasn't exactly sure what it was or what had happened. By then, I had left my teacher and was pretty much done with spiritual life. After 30 years, I'd had enough and been through enough. I had learned to take care of my interior world and over time had stabilized my condition and had no desire to get involved with another teacher in the hope of having my remaining questions answered. In a sense, I forgot all about spirituality. About five years ago, I began to become very curious about my state. I was reading the Masters again in a casual way, and their words seemed to match my experience. I believed that there was an excellent chance I was fooling myself, however, and it became important to find out. I contacted a well-known Vedanta teacher, who I trusted with my story, and he very kindly confirmed my understanding and helped clear my remaining questions. I was satisfied. After that, spiritual life slipped even further into the background. Recently, after a series of formal interviews with her friend Amir Freiman, Anna started speaking openly about her state and her ongoing experience of transcendence of a contracted identification with her personal story. In this conversation, we discuss Anne's background of deep spiritual practice, the crisis that led her to make a decision to shift her sense of identity from her personal narrative to that within which remains unchanging, and how Anne has come to integrate this mode of being into her life in the world. And sweet, welcome to The Mystical Positivist. Thank you very much. It's great to be here. Well, it's great to have you. And we will begin with the question that we have uh, come to uh, uh, experience as a tradition when we first speak to a guest. And that is to invite you to cast your mind back to childhood and youth. And in so doing, um, look for any Uh, experiences that in retrospect you might point to and say, ah, that was a precursor, a harbinger of some of the ways that my life would later proceed, especially with regard to spiritual practice, etc. So if any such um, um, moments um, arise, please share them with, uh, with our audience. Um, well, I I grew up in uh, in Perth in Western Australia in the fifties, which was um, still very undeveloped. So I I had the um, the great good fortune to have a, a, a childhood still half wild. You know, we were the kids were left to run free. There was a lot of virgin bush around where we lived, and lakes and ocean and so forth. So that sense of uh, personal freedom was very much ingrained in me from an early age and the sense of being in touch with nature and of being very connected to nature. And, um, and I think that 
um, that sense of freedom m- maybe created a, a place in me, a, a, pl- a recognizable place that I didn't ever want to lose or that I didn't, mm-hmm. I, I didn't want to retreat from. And I think uh, also as a kid, I was very aware that the grown-ups had sort of died, you know, that they were no longer mm-hmm. um, vibrant and, and authentic and alive and, and spontaneous. They seemed to have just... I don't know, gone a bit dead. And I never wanted that to happen to me. And um, I used to ride horses a lot through the bush. That was my great joy. So there was that sense of freedom in riding. And also it was for me a reminder to never become like the grown-ups, you know, to never lose that um, that sense of of uh, power and authenticity and, and inner strength somehow, you know. And um, and somehow I managed to hang on to at least a, a bit of that as a, as an adult. I never fully succumbed to what society kind of dictates that we we should be. So they were the main things. And I think um, there was also uh, I was a bit of a tomboy, so I used to climb trees and so on. And and whenever my parents would have a row, I would um, at night, you know. Uh, I'd leave the house and go and climb a tree and and sort of commune with the stars and the moonlight and so on. So so that may have also been something evocative for me as a kid, you know, to of, of some sort of inner being, if you like, some kind of recognition of um, being in touch with something greater than myself. So so those things, freedom, uh, great personal freedom. <clears throat> and uh, the sense of being connected through nature and through communion with nature somehow, I think maybe were early seeds. Hmm. For- well, that's, that's interesting. Um, I'm curious, uh, what age do you think you can isolate when you, find, when you first maybe cognized how adults were that you didn't want to be, want to, didn't want to devolve to? You're asking me to go back a long way, Rob. To go- <laughs> <laughs> it's our way. <laughs> um, I don't have an age. I think I was probably, I really don't have an age, but it must have been um, maybe eight or nine. Okay. Something like, something like that, you know, but, but mm-hmm. that idea stayed, or that knowledge or that, that, that sense stayed with me all the way through, you know, that I didn't want to turn out the way they they were. Mm-hmm. Did when you yourself became a younger adult? Mm-hmm. I'm wondering if you noticed, because of this sensitivity, mm-hmm. um, how your peers at that time might have been succumbing, if you will, to a sort of uh, um, conditioned uniformity that it sounds like you're pointing to with older adults. Right. I think by the time I became a young adult, I was um, I was pretty much a crazy mixed up kid at that point. You know, I was so at that point so self concerned, and so um, uh, uh, and myself so lacking in freedom that I don't think I had really much awareness of you know okay. of what you're talking about. I think by then, especially as a young woman growing up, you know, with all the focus that is on young women you know as they're maturing and and my own internal turmoil if you like um there wasn't much space or room for a lot of awareness okay so what is the what was the turmoil um that you were just uh, pointing to or mentioning um 
Well, I always felt like a bit of an oddity. You know, I never really um, felt like I fitted in. Uh, my family was also quite unusual. Um, and um, so I didn't really have a sense of myself as a as a very integrated human being. You know, I, I didn't really know how to be in the world. I was awkward with other people. Um, yeah, I struggled as a young person to, to find my way, hmm. you know, to find my way. And I didn't have a kind of e- easy time of it as a, young, as a young person. So did that struggle ultimately lead to attraction to a spiritual path of, of one form or another, or did that come out through, through other causes? No, I think that's an excellent point. Um, I, think, I think that sort of turmoil... Um, is a great propellant towards spiritual life because we're, we're, we, we, if one isn't comfortable, if you're not comfortable in your own skin, you're forced to dig deeper somehow to find the answers. And I think very, very much that created a, a need in me to, to find what it would be to, to feel whole and to feel, um, you know, to feel that sense of freedom that I really wanted to maintain as a younger, as a young person, as a very young person. So, so that's so what- exactly- so what were the first uh, steps that were a manifestation of that uh, search? Um, it took a long time. I, was, uh, I wasn't a very worldly person. I didn't come from a worldly environment, a sophisticated environment. And so it wasn't until I moved um, to London, really, that, that my mind started to open up to these things. I hadn't heard of spiritual teachers or spiritual teachings. I wasn't satisfied with my... Uh, the, the religion I grew up in, I thought that was just another, you know, one of these grown-up constructs that had no life force left. Just, in it. That was my. Just out of curiosity, what was what was that? Uh, uh, um, structure? It was a, a Christian. It was a, a, a Christian background, but not not very much imposed. I mean, my parents weren't religious in that sense, but I wasn't attracted to to the Christian church to mm-hmm. find answers. That just seemed like another dead place to me then. Um, so it wasn't until I moved to London and a friend of mine asked me to pick up a book from a bookstore, uh, which I read on the way home, which was from uh, Rajneesh, mm. Osho Rajneesh. Yeah. And, uh, and so that was, um, and I, but I'd been, I'd been asking these questions like, what's the point of this? You know, why are we here? Who am I? All those sorts of questions. And my, my, half the members of my family were very academically oriented and quite philosophical. And so there'd be these discussions, but I never found them very satisfying. They just seemed to stay on one sort of level and there were never any answers. You know, there were just endless discussions really. And suddenly this book was in my hand saying, you have to find the truth of who you are and why you're here. Um, Don't listen to society telling you how to be and what you should want and what you should do. And that there is another whole realm of of experience for the human being that you haven't that belongs to you, but that you haven't even you know began to investigate or to make your own. So I, I was dumbstruck. I I could not believe what I was reading. I had never heard those words before. I'd never even known that someone could talk to you like that. Mm-hmm. So of course, very quickly, I ended up in. India in the ashram, you know, because this was what I'd, I'd been, I didn't know that this was what I'd been waiting for, but this is what I had been waiting for. How, how and, old How old were you uh, when you moved to London and then found this Rajneesh book? Um, I was probably about 
21 when I moved to London. Okay. And I found the book when I was about 24. Ah. So, okay. So, so out of that, you actually moved to uh, India to the uh, 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 Rajneesh Ashram? Yes, yes, yes. And how, how long were you a member of that community then? I was in India for about five years and um, at the Oregon Ranch for one year. And I was involved overall for probably about 15 or 17 years. So quite mm -hmm. a, it was really my, my formative thing. And I didn't have the, um, the sense of discrimination at that point. Hopefully it's a bit better now um, to look into other teachings or other teachers. You know, I had found this book. And in my naivety, I'd gone, this is it. And I didn't really investigate if there was an alternative or I should look elsewhere. So, um, so I just stayed within that, that group, if you like, for a very long time. I mean, Rajneesh, uh, as a teacher, was also pretty eclectic. I mean, yes. my, for, he was... He drew on lots of other he, he drew, uh, yeah, teachings. Many traditions. We, we have friends who um, were part of that community and actually part of the... Uh, Oregon community who ultimately went on to other teachers after the uh, community uh, ended. But uh, one I'm thinking of was a, uh, a student of the Gurdjieff work, the Fourth Way work, and Rajneesh was very positive on that and uh, wanted him to continue even as he was a devotee of uh, uh, Rajneesh slash Osho. So and so go ahead and respond. No, no, no. Go, ahead. go ahead. Well, I, I'm, I guess I'm, I'm, I'm wanting to, to draw you out on um, how you're, I, I get the feeling that it's, that it was sort of a heart opening for you to discover this community, this teacher, this, uh, the teachings. Um, and um, I'm wondering how you, how, all that landed for you in terms of sangha or community. Does that question make sense to you? Yes, it does. Um, I wouldn't necessarily say a heart opening, um, Rob. It was more, I think, my my spirit, which had been so thirsty for so long and not really even knowing what spirit meant or what that longing was all about, okay. was suddenly immersed in everything I could have dreamed of, you know, mm -hmm. at least at a certain level, you know. And so that was electrifying for me um, to, to be in an environment where that was the milieu, where, where spirit was, was all that was discussed and, and transmitted and so on. I mean, there was a lot of other things going on as well, but that was really the context, you know, the spiritual life was the context. So that was marvellous. Um, the Sangha, it was an extraordinary time and many extraordinary people, um, but I hadn't, um, I hadn't really matured a great deal as a person at that point. And I was still a very awkward, you know, young woman. And um, so it was quite intimidating for me. There were very many, you know, very confident, very sophisticated, very worldly, very wealthy people there. And I was a small town girl and um, it was very challenging for me. So it, Sangha for me wasn't as it was for many um, of Osho's people, um, you know, this marvelous group, you know, that they could embrace and be. I, I somehow always felt like a little bit of an outsider and I, I didn't fully embrace a lot of the 
the social mores or the sexual mores of 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 the group so it it um yeah i i remained an awkward person <laughs> so uh so that that sense of being a little a little apart from yeah. from group group yes. life community yes. life mm. A little, so, yeah, a little bit. I mean, I participated, obviously, and I was completely sure. committed and so on. But, um, but something in me also kept a certain distance, I think, in the whole mm -hmm. thing. Okay. Well, then how, um, so when you met, you, you were electrified by the book and yes. by the participation in the community life um, and the, dis the discussions of spirit and spirituality. Um, what was your relation? How would you describe your relationship with the teacher himself, in this case, Osho? Um, you didn't get to spend very much time with him, you know, just a few <laughs> minutes every few months or so. So right. I wouldn't say I had a relationship with him uh, mm -hmm. in the way that, you know, his close disciples had. I sure. was not a close disciple by any means. Um, so it was really a relationship of adoration, you know, of bhakti from my side. Mm -hmm. um, uh, but it was, uh, he was still a mythic creature for me. He wasn't mm -hmm. like a real person. It wasn't a relationship between, you know, two equals or anything like that. Sure. So, so the guru was, was definitely part of, and he also mythologized himself, of course. So, yeah. so, um, so that was my relationship with him, with, with, with something mythic. Yeah. And, and so I'm, I'm sort of imagining that, that, you would have, with the background that you describe of, I'm the small town girl who doesn't fit in, um, that would have helped maintain that, that distance between you and, and Osho in a, in a certain kind of sense. That is, he on the one hand is mythologizing, creating a mythological story, as it were, around himself and his teaching, and even his community, I guess, and then you are, is it fair to say that, that, the, um, that the discomfort of feeling never quite fitting in was a lack of self-confidence in, in your own um, perceptions and, and uh, um, engagement with the world at that time? I think... Um... I think within myself, I had a sense of real surety. I don't know okay. uh, where that came from. Deep within myself, I kind of knew, I always knew who I was somewhere. Mm -hmm. But socially, I was awkward. You know, I, okay. I, I, I think, yeah, so, yeah. So, yeah. Is it was it awkwardness in the sense of being uncomfortable of not knowing what to do or awkwardness in the sense that you were not interested in engaging at the level that often people engage in socially and so you just weren't drawn to that kind of uh, uh, banter as it were no i was just awkward okay. <laughs> i mean i managed i, I managed yeah. to develop a persona that got me through but it was a great effort to maintain you know mm. and it, it definitely didn't match the sort of kind of quiet, secure person within. It was much more of a, of a sort of an outgoing, fake personality, if you like, that got me, got me through. Got it. Hmm. 
Interesting. And and do you, was that something that you thought would help you integrate with, um, and did, I guess, from what you're describing, um, integrate into the life of the community more generally? No. No, <laughs> I think... Um, yeah, I think I struggled. I think I struggled, you know, on okay. that on that level. Yeah, yeah. I, mean, I did as well as I could, you know, and I, I probably fooled a few people, but but uh, I, I fundamentally wasn't comfortable in my own skin. So mm. I'm okay. sure that came. I'm sure that came across. Got it. And I think uh, that. Oh. I was just going to say that I, I I just relate to that contrast for myself that there's this this gap between our social self and the persona that we put on in order to engage with the world and a sense of self that we experience within when all of that demand is not there. And that gap can be large. It can be very difficult. Um, uh, you know, sometimes with good practice, one can navigate it uh, more effectively, but that gap certainly in my experience is a very real one. So how did the, you know, so, so what happened next with the, with the evolution of your relationship with that community? Did there, it sounds like there was a, uh, a transition or an end to that. Uh, did that lead to another community or other work with other teachers or? Yes, yes, it did. Um, after I, um, I think it came to a natural end for me, the thing with Osha, he died and, mm -hmm. you know, the community sort of dispersed and so on. So, um, I was back in Australia and um, I, I became very interested in Barry Long's teachings mm -hmm. and they were almost the opposite, if you like, of the Osho teachings in terms of, you know, the relationships between men and women and cultivating integrity and all these sorts of things. It was a, it was a, a, a complete flip, if you like, in teachers. And um, I found Barry's teachings very useful. I mean, I wasn't a, a committed student. I don't think he was taking on students at that point anyway, but I used to go to all his retreats and, and teachings on the East Coast. Um, and that lasted for a couple of years. And it was very valuable to me, uh, the time with, with Barry. And it was a, it was a chance to, um, to land, I think, to really land after all the sort of hectic Osho years. And I think the, with Osho also, we'd, we'd had, you know, years of sitting with him in discourse. You know, he would talk for hours every morning. And so this uh, transmission, the sort of meditative transmission or spiritual transmission was really my milieu for a very long time. And Barry um, continued that. It was beautiful to sit with him. And, and I think I was building within a sort of reservoir of my own interiority, if you like, my own sense of spaciousness and peace within through sitting with these guys and through meditating and practice and what have you. So, um, and then a kind of whirlwind came into my life, which was Andrew Cohen. Mm -hmm. And he, 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 he just tore the ground up from underneath my feet somehow. And again, I don't think I've been able, I don't think I've been very discriminating in the way that I've chosen teachers. You know, I haven't, I haven't done it very logically or very, um, yeah, very logically. But uh, Andrew seemed to be everything that I really wanted in a teacher. He was kind of my age. He was my culture. Um, suddenly there was, the, it seemed like, you know, personal freedom or enlightenment was accessible for the first time. You know, he wasn't a, 
a mystic from India. You know, he wasn't this older Australian guy. He was someone I could really relate to and his life I could really relate to. And I loved the teachings in the early days. I really loved his teachings. So um, that was my next kind of step so, on the journey. And then what, what phase of his teaching arc was that? Was that the, like the early days when he was in uh, Northern California? Was it uh, fresh out of India? Was it the uh, was, Massachusetts um, era? <laughs> in the middle of those, it was the mid the mid nineties. Okay. Well, I, so well before we go on, I, I'm I've heard the name Barry Long, but I don't honestly know much about Barry Long. So I, I would I'm curious if you could just flesh flesh that that era as you experienced it out just a bit more you said you went to every, all his retreats yes. he's an older man uh, yes. uh than you what um what drew you uh to his work and and if you could describe just in a you know a nutshell what that was what that was um what drew me to him was his um the refreshingness after Osho, you know, with all the costumes and the Rolls Royces and all the lawsuits and the complexity, which I found very off-putting, um, not to mention a lot of the illegalities and, and so on. And so Barry was just a very straight person, you know, straight Aussie, down to earth, mm-hmm. um, uh, had a lot of integrity, um, was was the opposite of fancy, you know. He he just dressed very normally. He was very accessible as a person. Um, and his teaching, um, again, I think you know, he he focused a lot on the, uh, having a dignified relationship between between men and women, and mm-hmm. that was quite different from the Osho times. Um, and really, I mean, like most of the teachers, he was saying, you know, there's there's the you the personality you who is this contracted individual, if you like, full of self-concern. And there's another aspect of you, which is the real you, um, that you that you have to discover and actualize. And he had various ways of, of going about that. And, and a lot of that was to do with, with these um, uh, man, man-woman relationships, you know. Or, oh, or that's interesting. How, I mean, how, how did he... Um... Um, articulate how to develop this maturity um, uh, in in the context of of uh, that kind of relationship. Was there? A, I mean, was there a was there an overall kind of art, an overarching kind of understanding of how how to move forward in that realm? I'm sure there was, Rob. I don't know if I can remember what it is now. Um, okay. I, think, I think it was a lot to do with just personal integrity and honesty and straightness, you know, okay. and um, and being vulnerable about your experience, but not in a, mm. an overly personal way. So the intimate relationship was really a mirror for each person to get a clear reflection of where they were. But it wasn't um, a roughhousing. It was a very... Um, you know, it was, a, it was a dignified way of relating. It was a, a, a very mature way of relating. Hmm. Thank was you. His, was his uh, tradition, did he represent a tradition uh, or uh, was he more of a self-actualized teacher? More of a self-actualized teacher. Okay. Mm-hmm. okay. 
And so then moving uh, back to your relationship with Andrew, uh, how long did that last? Or, you know, at, at, at what point did you ultimately um, uh, separate from that community? Right. I was with Andrew for about eight years and I was uh, completely committed in that to him and to the community. So I, I moved back to London to be with, you know, to be with the group there and travel with him and all the rest of it. So um, that was really, I think, my most um, significant uh, teacher-student relationship, if you like, because that was the first time that I really um, allowed myself to trust someone more than I trusted myself. Up until that point, I'd always held an anchor into my into myself, and I'd always somehow kept separate. But with Andrew, it was like, uh, this is the time, you know, I can just really go for this. And I was really, really ready. You know, I felt the last sort of 20 years had prepared me for a, a really deep teacher-student relationship. And, and that's what I went for with him. Hmm. So um, um, I'm wondering how the meditation aspect that you'd already deeply incorporated into your life, as, as I understand what you're saying, um, from from your previous work, how that um, integrated with with this um, this real uh, this powerful relationship with Andrew Cohen. How did that How did that fit together? Well, I mean, to be Andrew's student meant that you did a lot of practice. I mean, we were doing hours of practice and discussion groups every single day. And there mm -hmm. wasn't really a time when, you know, if, if you, you maybe had an outside job, but every other moment of your day was somehow focused on spirit, you know, spiritual investigation or meditation or, or, or work for the community and so on. So mm -hmm. it was integral. It was integral. So they were really one in the same thing. The relationship with the teacher and practice were, were, were pretty well identical. And how did that differ from, for example, your time with uh, Osho and that community? I think the the times with with Osho, the the meditations were more um, to do with one's own sort of interiority and bliss bliss experiences and and consciousness expanding experiences. Hmm. And with, with Andrew, um, there was all, usually a purpose behind it. And that purpose had to do with, with Andrew's teaching, which was this sort of evolution of consciousness, if you like, which I never hmm. fully understood, <laughs> even after eight years. I still don't really understand it. So, um, so the practice was, um, it was a very dominant part of our lives. And it, it was very purposeful in a sense. It wasn't for your own benefit. It was to move, you know, humanity forward or move the group hmm. forward. Okay. And so how did that, um, what was the evolution of that? I mean, there, presumably there came a point where you left the community mm -hmm. um, and I'm interested, how, you know, where you were at at that point. Um, exhausted, broke, <laughs> completely burnt out. You know, I was completely burnt out. I mean, it's a very intense yeah. Mm -hmm. In his community, we had very little sleep. There was enormous pressure on each person, you know. Uh, the feedback was brutal. The, the schedule was brutal. And um, I realized I just couldn't do it anymore. You know, I couldn't, I didn't want to do it anymore. I couldn't do it anymore. 
Um, and I was also finding the teachings had gone in a direction that was less and less satisfying to me. You know, I, I, I just, anyway, there was a, a parting of the ways. So that, that, that was the, the end of that relationship. Really. And that was the last formal relationship you had. Is that correct? Yes. 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 Yeah. And, and I think that, you know, what we're interested in because a, a good part of the, um, the story or the reason that we're even talking is that, uh, this was all kind of a, uh, a warm up for a something else or a consolidation that happened in a different way. And I'm interested if, if you could maybe talk about then what your life was like after having been doing these many, you know, years, pre- presumably decades of intense spiritual work. What in different in, in, and what's interesting about it is uh, to me, or one thing that's interesting about it is, is the, the, you were you were in at least two of these three cases really outwardly committed at least mm-hmm. and in the third case highly inwardly committed if as you've related so um so then and and that and that had occupied th- those engagements had occupied up till then pretty much the entirety of your adult life right this is a very, um, I'm intrigued to have, if there's more you can say about that, I'd, uh, I'd appreciate um, hearing more about that. Um, about how spirituality ruined my life, is that <laughs> <laughs> If that's how you want to frame it. Yeah. <laughs> but, but, but. Well, maybe formal spirituality. <laughs> <laughs> I wasn't going there, but I'm perfectly fine with you to go there, for you to go there. <laughs> In many ways, it ruined my, my outer life because I was on the road for 30 years. You know, I was driven to be with these teachers. I gave up, you know, I had a promising career as an artist, you know, when I graduated in my 20s. Um, my family, of course, couldn't come to terms with the fact that I was with these gurus, especially Osho. Um, I didn't have any stability, financial stability. My, I didn't have a stable relationship all of those years, you know, mm-hmm. in the way that you would think. Yeah. So I had, I had no life apart from the search, you know, and apart from my, my, my time with the teachers. And, and of course, you know, most of my, my daily hours were spent working, you know, in the ashrams and, and so on. So I didn't in, ser- really- in service, essentially. In service, in service. So I didn't really build anything in the world at all. And mm-hmm. um, and I wasn't even really aware that I wasn't building anything in the world. You know, I was so focused on this one thing that I knew I had to solve the, the, the koan of existence or the riddle of existence. It was like a cruel riddle. You know, I, I knew that that I wasn't an integrated person and I knew that there was a depth that I wasn't reaching in myself or in mm-hmm. life. And I knew that there was a mystery that I, I intimated and, a, and, a, and a, uh, a sense of a greater reality and a greater truth that I couldn't get to except in moments. So, so uh, yes, spirituality ruined my outer life, if you like, for all of those. those well, things. I mean, I, I can certainly understand why you'd, why you, why you'd frame it that way. And in fact, I'm assuming that once you, you know, you said there was complete burnout 
um, at the end of the time with uh, Andrew Cohen's community. Um, and um, you couldn't go forward as you had been going. Yes, yes. It was a time of complete crisis for me, actually, because I had been so committed. And uh, we, you know, again, in my naivety, our naivety, I looked at Andrew, you know, as a manifestation of God, if you like, and that I had mm -hmm. completely committed to that and completely committed to that path. Mm -hmm. And when I turned my back on it, I... I I went through the most terrible agonies because it was though I turned my back on everything that was right and good and true. Mm -hmm. And, you know, the group sort of turns on you as these situations tend to play out, you know, that you, you really are ostracized and you are thought of as, you know, a terrible fallen person who's gone to the dark side. So I'd internalized a lot of those things. That's This is very important, it seems to me, um, this... Not, number one, the fact of the ostracism, and the, but particularly the internalization of it. Right, right. As I had ostracized others before me when they had left, you know, uh, and that was the culture in the group, you know. Andrew mm -hmm. was ruthless about people leaving and, and so disparaging about them. And, of course, we copied, we copied his example. So there I was, you know, broke, um, an artist in London, you know, trying to build my career, um, and uh, with this terrible schism inside, you know, I was just torn apart by the fact that I, I thought I had really fallen into the dark side. And I couldn't, I, I just couldn't um, find a way through this mental and emotional trauma. And I, I had moved to London. I didn't know anyone outside the community. So I was, in a sense, stuck in London because I was building my career. I didn't want to leave, but I didn't know anybody. And I had no one to talk to. And, um, and it was a, a time of complete crisis for me. And the only thing that really got me through um, was meditation because I had, mm. over those decades, built a solid foundation. So that's what I did. I sort of meditated um, to find some kind of peace, you know, some sort of relief. I use it a bit like a drug, if you like, you know, some sort of self-medicating with, with meditation. Because but, my oh, I, I just want to be clear uh, uh, when you say that, that your meditation was, in, in a sense, there was a crisis going on, but your meditation allowed you to connect with something within yourself that yes. was outside of that crisis that's right and that's right. and it wasn't it wasn't a drug in the sense that you were numbing yourself to the crisis so much as the crisis was present but you were touching something that was uh, either outside of or beyond uh, or in a different category of the crisis is that that's is very it? Well picked out Stuart. that's that's extremely important what you just said that's exactly right that's exactly right I think I must have by that time, although I wasn't aware of it, um, found a place in myself in meditation that was beyond the thought stream or the stream of emotions or experience. So I think I was familiar with that territory within myself, if you like, and it was accessible to me. It was accessible to me. And so um, I was able to rest there. And I paid a lot more attention to it than I ever had done before when I was more comfortable and not in a crisis. You know, meditation before that had been a nice experience that I, the personal self, had always enjoyed or enjoyed. But now it was 
something quite different. It was a refuge for me, away from what I would normally identify as myself, my thoughts and feelings and experience. So there was a, a sort of change in my understanding of what meditation was during that period. Hmm. And it started to dawn on me that I, I was, um, and the crisis went on, you know, for months, basically. And I was really worried about myself because I knew that mentally I was starting to fragment, you know, I was starting to um, lose my grip, if you like, because I, I, I did feel this split so keenly. Yeah, I, I, I want to uh, ask a little more about that because when you have the contact with that part of yourself that's uh, 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 senior to um, this this split, or the you know, or, or senior senior to the fragmentation of the mind, uh, I get. I guess what I'm trying to ask is what. Is it that you would find yourself if you went to the realm of the mind that you'd become identified and then that would be just a really turbulent kind of uh, place? And then if you withdrew into meditation, that turbulence would yes, be gone. Exactly. But the, what was lacking was a bridge between the two in a sense that uh, it was kind of either or at that time. It was either or. It okay. was either or. That's So it, it began to occur to me, you know, and what I was finding in meditation um, was that I was, I was experiencing um, exactly the same thing each time. There just seemed to be this ground that was completely stable mm -hmm. and unchanging and always spacious and always calm. And then I would get up, you know, and suddenly all the thoughts and the feelings and everything would explode again, you know. And because I was so completely alone at that time, um, I didn't have anything else to do but really examine my experience. And I had to examine it because, you know, I was starting to kind of crumble mentally. And I saw that there were these two very, very different, in fact, opposite parts going on, these two two selves somehow that seemed completely incompatible in the way that you just described. And on one hand, you know, in meditation, I was completely stable. Nothing had ever touched that place. Nothing was wrong. Everything was just as it should be. And then the opposite of that. And, and, and I saw them so clearly. I saw these two aspects unbelievably clearly because they were so extreme. And I knew they couldn't both be true simultaneously. I just couldn't see how that was possible. I didn't think that there could be a link for me that there were these, I was, I was literally two different people depending on which one I was in. And I couldn't bear that dichotomy or that split anymore. And I knew I had to make a choice. You know, who was I? Was I this crazy person who was full of, you know, agony or was I completely whole and calm and spacious and quite joyful, you know? Who who am I? Who who was I? And uh, I knew I couldn't continue with the Anne personality because, she, you know, she was disintegrating. And I also knew that this this so-called part of me was other part was completely stable and completely unchanging and completely reliable. 
And in a sense, there, there was no choice because there was only one that made any sense to me at that point. You mm. know? And um, so I chose it. I, did, I, made, I deliberately chose it. And I felt it was a huge risk because I was still attached and identified to my, my personality, if you like, my, my historical self. And so to, to make a choice for something other than that, even though I had built that over 30 years, it was still, as far as I was concerned, that, that place of meditation or peace or wholeness was something that I, the personal self, experienced. So it was always, it was always in that relationship. It wasn't like that ground of being was my deeper truth. It was always, oh, that's that's the depth that belongs to the personal self. That's oh, the mistake. Yeah. That's the mistake I'd made for thirty years, you know. And and we often don't get pointed in that direction to look at that. And I think that's. A great, a great thing missing from, you know, from many people's spiritual lives, actually. Yeah. It's so, um, so in retrospect now, looking back at the build-up to this decision that you've just described, um, these thirty, the, these thirty years of meditation, I am assuming in in a, in a, from what you said, in a variety of different forms of self-inquiry and self-examination, right? Mm -hmm. um, um, is, does it seem as if to be able to have the insight that you had, just that you just articulated, um, did you have to go through this cave in the midst of an, an enormous city, as it were, because that only exacerbated the, uh, the contrast? I think an inte a truly intelligent person does not need to go through that. And I think a wise or a well-taught person does not have to go through that. That happened to be my very extreme experience. And, and it's not one that I recommend or think is in any way necessary. Not at all. Not, in fact, I advise against it. <laughs> uh, I, I remember reading something recently on the internet from uh, someone who's become a, um, you know, uh, an associate or a friend or so on, saying that he he just examined, he just examined very methodically his own experience in that same way that I did in crisis. And he just came to the same understanding quite naturally and and quite um, just through reason, you know, in the same, in the way that, you know, you frame your radio program. He, he just dissected his experience and went, this is unchanging, completely reliable, always you know, spacious and beautiful and full of peace. And this is my mind stream, which is always changing, never reliable, um, you know, always contracted. Who am I? And he chose for that. So for him, it was a very um, rational choice. For me, it was a big drama, unfortunately. Well, I, I get, it's an interesting contrast because our own teacher would uh, often describe the fact that, you know, the more warts we had or the more uh, handles of neurosis that we had to deal with, the more powerful the transformation. Uh, that um, if one is sort of perfectly smooth, as it were, um, the occasions for friction are not so large. And so then one may at one level reach a kind of an understanding, but there's a power that comes from the kind of suffering that you're describing. Mm 
that that's I think that's all, also true. I think I think because of our identification with the personal historical self, it's very difficult to uproot us from that because that's all we've ever known. So we're very locked in there, and we're unwilling, if you like, to to give that up. You know, even though we may be great meditators and have a long history of spiritual inquiry and all the rest. So that freak, and some some people, as I just just described, this this other person who was able to just do it logically, he was able to you know to go through it, dissect the whole thing logically and make his choice. Um, but I think friction for m most of us probably is a pretty important thing. I, I probably would never have made that changeover mm -hmm. in other circumstances. Well, there was, I mean, there was certainly a necessity that you had, I had uh, a necessity. and that necessity uh, demanded a response at, at some it, level. It was the mother of invention. Yes, mother, <laughs> the mother of invention. Uh, it was a mother. <laughs> yes, but, and you said something that I, 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 I want to make sure we uh, 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 emphasize. That was fascinating to me. Is that 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 you saw that your relationship to even meditative states, your relationship to even having a, a an experience of this uh, deeper sense of being was still a little bit like a tourist in that there was this personal self who was having the experience. And so the center of gravity of the experience was still in reference to the personal self. Absolutely. And that the contrast that you're describing is really fascinating to me is that when that contrast shifts and uh, suddenly the center of gravity uh, moves, then suddenly it's the personal self that is sort of uh, peripherals of the experience. Yes. Yes. And, and so then I guess it's a, an interesting, it's almost like a reversal then that, that your experience of the personal self now is, is more like uh, touring a, uh, uh, an identified uh, 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 egoic structure, but the tourist is now this deeper part. That's brilliantly put. Yes, yes. That's right. I think, I, I don't know who said it, um, maybe James Schwartz, the Vedanta teacher, that the ego and the self change places. So whereas one was dominant and one was behind or an object of the dominant personality, and that flips where, the, where, where your own self is the dominant, and uh, you're aware that you have a, a personal self, but it's, it's more amorphous, it's more hologrammatic, if you like. It's not the dominating or the dominant. Yeah. Yeah, that, that metaphor comes up in the fourth way tradition with the contrast of false personality and essence where yeah. it's like the uh, the affirming force in an ordinary consciousness is the false personality and uh, the essence is sort of passive to that. And then when that flips, it's like uh, uh, suddenly the essence is, is the active force and the uh, sort of determines the facts of life as it were and the the personality comes along for the ride exactly. and more or less supports that yeah exactly that's exactly well i i want to ask you to reflect a little bit on your experience as compared with some of your contemporaries and uh, peers um because it seems to me that that 
the teachings of uh, as they have landed in the West during my lifetime, which is not that different than in terms of time framing here than yours, I think. Um, it seems to me that that there there was a focus on the experience of yes. the personal self and what it was going to get or obtain or achieve and 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 maybe it was just a feature of the times maybe it was the feature of the way in which the various teachings of um, asia could be absorbed even into the highly individualistic western mindset but I, i'm i'm curious just to to hear if you have any if you've had any reflections on this, you know, subsequent to your, to your, to this, um, I mean, we can, it's been a while since you had this, this flip that, that, that you have spoken of. And um, I think in, in other contexts, you've said that it, you sort of um, put aside the idea of spiritual practice and that now you're returning to it, if you will. To, exa to examine it. So having, having returned to examine it, what, what, is, what are your reflections on that? Oh, um, do, do you want me to go back to your original question, Rob, where you're saying that, that as Eastern mysticism, if you like, was translated into the West, that it was all about what the personal self was going to gain out of the whole... Well, that's, I'm, I'm offering that as, as one way to, to look at it. But I'm curious if you agree with that wholly, in part, if you have another take on it. That's, mm -hmm. that's what I'm inviting you to do. Um, if I have an insight into the whole thing, it would be that uh, our fascination and focus and um, obsession, if you like, with spiritual experiences has been uh, a great has been has been um, you know a red herring has mm -hmm. been a red herring and that in spiritual life as as I've experienced it and my my many of my peers have experienced it that was the holy grail that you kept having these fantastic experiences and at a certain point your brain would explode and then something from the heavens would come down and it would all be over for you you'd be enlightened whatever that means I have no idea what that would be um, and that's what I chased, and I think that's what many, many, many of us mm -hmm. chased for decades. And I think it's a fallacy. I honestly think it's a fallacy. And I think the experiential view of, uh, uh, of the search uh, or of, of spiritual seeking is the, wrong, is the wrong road, is the wrong path. Um, because what tends to happen, and we've, we've discussed this, um, is that the personal self catches hold of those experiences and makes them into some sort of uh, trophy of experience for itself. So I had this Satori and it was the biggest Satori was fabulous, you know? So mm -hmm. it just, as, as, as you were saying, it just adds something, what you were saying earlier, Rob, just adds something more, you know, <laughs> ego structure. Now I'm a, I'm an ego structure with these fabulous experiences. So then I'm very special. I'm progressing on the path and I'm well on my way. I just need a few more of these and then it'll all be over. This external something will come out of the heavens and illuminate me. 
and not to deny the significance and importance of spiritual experience or satori experiences because they they shine a light you know they they give an indication they give courage they they show potential and possibility but but i think it's far more important um to to do the work which again we've we've spoken of the work of really investigating the difference between the contracted historical personal self that we're very familiar and attached to and what this ground of being this this expansive always present always available always true always immersive part of ourselves what these two aspects of ourselves are and which one are we going to identify with which one are we going to hold ourselves fast to hold what do they say you you lash yourself to the mask you know are we mm-hmm. going to continue going along the same track with the personal self which is only ever going to continue as it is endlessly you may become slightly less neurotic you may become wiser you may become a bit more peaceful as you get older but fundamentally it's not going to change the significant change the only real change is the change of identification into that which never changes it is into the true self so the chasing of experiences and the hope that this thing will enter us from the heavens for me is the fallacy because nothing's going to enter you from the heavens it's already there within you it is the deepest and strongest and most the truest part of yourself it has never gone anywhere cannot go anywhere it's inherent to who you are um and your personal self is kind of stuck on top of it so so it's really drilling down and again this is what your program is about you know logically and reason with reason finding out how these whole things work and then making making a cons- a, a considered choice mm-hmm. and it comes down i think much more to a choice than it does waiting for something that may never happen to happen i appreciate i mean that's a, that's uh beautifully put and i'm interested then in a the, the question i guess is coming up as you speak about that is what are the marks in your experience of having made that transition and and what that what i mean by that is um how does that how do the consequences of that shift in identification play out in the um uh, individuated uh egoic realm because presumably it make it uh will have ramifications in how life unfolds and how the personality structure sort of reconfigures and uh uh manifests in one's life so what have you found as the the consequences of this shift um well it's definitely evolved over time i think you know it's taken a, a long time for uh the maturation process i think to and also for this to stabilize it took maybe five years or so or or longer for this to completely stabilize um and how it plays out is that 
you know, I can, I can talk about that awkward, you know, self-concerned young person who didn't fit in society and didn't know how to be, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, and I can, I can think of her with great fondness now and great concern, you know, great concern of what she went through because mm-hmm. that's just not my experience, you know. I really don't care. Mm-hmm. I actually don't, you know, I don't, I don't care. And part of that is from becoming an older person, you know, you don't care so much about how people perceive you or, or what have you. But there is um, a huge ease in, in my sense of self, you know, I, 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 I don't, I'm not overly concerned with any of it really. You know, I'm not focused on my personal story. I'm not, I'm not engaged in that, in that way, if you like, it doesn't draw my attention. It doesn't draw my attention. So instead of feeling, you know, a sense of anxiety and tension and ill at easeness. Um, I'm happy and relaxed and there's spaciousness and peace and, and, um, and, a, and a general kind of joy in life and a, and, a, and a great evenness in my emotional makeup, if you like. You know, I'm, I don't really change much from mm-hmm. day to day or hour to hour or, or what have you. Which shouldn't be confused with uh, uh, flatness of affect, right? It's, uh... <laughs> it's easy, but it's not flat. No, there's, yeah. a, there's a richness and there's a sense of connectedness. So there's never any, um, you know, it's just like from where everything felt like it didn't quite fit, now everything fits. And there, I think uh, Amir's term for it is self-integration. Your whole self just feels integrated. Mm-hmm. And not just within yourself, but you're integrated into the whole. So, so everything, fits. you know, you, you, you don't necessarily know the answers to the deep mysteries of existence, um, but you certainly know your place in yourself and your place in life. And mm-hmm. there's, no con- there's, not, there's not that kind of conflict and there's not the striving and there's not the obsession with the future or the dwelling in the past, you know, so you're very free just to hang out with the guys, you know, or, or, or whatever. So that, that poor tortured personality um, has almost completely, you know, not disappeared, but fallen into the background. And she's not even tortured anymore. You know, there's no, that's not, that's not a reality for me in any way. Well, it's, uh, you used the word striving just a moment ago. And I think it's really interesting to think about how that, off, that word is often used um, in terms of spiritual practice. It's, it's understood to be a, um, a virtue, if you will. I'm striving for realization or something like that. And what you're saying is that, as I'm understanding it, is that, is that the striving in the sense of, I mean, I, the word that came up for me when you were talking about it at this point a little earlier was fighting. You, you know, one, one has, at least, and that's, I suppose, an uh, expression of my own sense of my early life, was fighting to be okay and never succeeding, you know. So, um, so that striving 
is something that um, is unproductive. At least that's what I'm hearing you say. But I do want to also point out that that, that the other kind, that, that the unproductive striving caused you to engage with questions that otherwise would have not given you the, the food, the spiritual nutrition to be able to recognize that your years of meditation had created an alternative for you at all. Yes, that's, that's very wise, Rob. That's, that's true. That's true. But one doesn't want to keep striving one's whole life. Oh, <laughs> well, well, isn't uh, there's a time and season for everything uh, according to the Bible? Yeah, there is. There absolutely is. And so I, 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 so I, I want to ask a question, and I'm partly relating this to uh, experiences that I have um, in this regard. And that's, uh, as far as I can relate a lot to what you're describing in terms of the... Uh, uh, a kind of evenness of state or uh and which i would i would kind of characterize as a, a a kind of receptivity a receptivity to whatever the universe throws up every now and then something gets thrown up that uh catches or or is sticky and what i find uh in terms of what I would relate from the from this place we're describing is one characteristic of that is that when something sticky shows up, it's kind of like, oh, how interesting. <laughs> Why is this happening? And uh, it becomes an occasion for uh, inquiry as opposed to uh, a problem that has to be fixed as much as why is there this thing arising uh, in this time uh, in relationship to this circumstance? Do, do you, does that make sense? Yes, but you're much wiser than than I am, um, Stuart, dealing with it. I mean, for me, when one of those things comes, um, thankfully the ground doesn't change. You know, the fundamental mm-hmm. ground of being doesn't change. But the stick is still a, you know, it's... Yeah. it's well, yeah. well I, and, I, I'm, and I'm saying it is. I'm, I'm not... I'm not uh, uh, I, I think what I'm saying is uh, in this is that what you're describing doesn't necessarily make one immune to living it's just that your relationship to these things that come up is very different yes that's that's true because i think you have this kind of wellspring so 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 if you're just if you're just operating from the personal self any of the the brickbats of life are a direct hit because that's all you've got you know you've just got your personal self which is already fragile yeah, and yeah. And then the, the the bricks come, and and you know they 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 have a very dynamic effect. But if there's a wellspring already that you're you're existing within, that is you. Uh, when things happen, you deal with them from that place. There's no, they're, they're still unpleasant, but they they don't consume you in this in the same way. Something's already consumed you, if you like, and so so there's a bit of distance and space there. I, I like that metaphor very much, uh, 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 an inner wellspring, because, because it's, uh, to use the word you just uh, uh, um, used, um, it's, it implies a dynamism, uh, a dynamic quality to the responses 
um, to those brickbats. You know, um, uh, if we're not defended, and you know, one of the insights of the fourth way, as well as other spiritual traditions, is that is that this um, egoic structure we've been talking around um, is comprised of many um, forms of defense. Um, anticipated defense is anticipated against brickbats that haven't arrived yet, but are anticipated will arrive. <laughs> right. <laughs> Oh, and, everyone is Jewish. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, so, so that when it's put aside, um, you know, as well as as feasibly as possible, and you and you just mentioned there was a period of stabilization um, of, of five years, and, and still things can can come along. That's certainly my experience too. Um, but there's a um, there's a uh, this dynamic quality of of a welling up of of truth, which will encompass whatever response the brickbat has to to your um, uh, sense of what's what's happening and and so forth. Um, that dynamism is is really important, and it is markedly distinct from the idea about enlightenment that you were talking about before. You said, "Well, I, you know, you brought up the term enlightenment." You said, "Well, I don't know what that is, and and neither do I, because it's actually an idealization of 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 a um, of an inv- almost an invulnerability." Uh, or even dissociation from life's vicissitudes. Whereas this inner wellspring and its dynamism has a very different quality to it. Does that, does that make sense to you? Uh, yes, I think, I think so. You covered a lot of ground, but I think so. Um, I, I, I personally don't experience it as a dynamism though. It's more that the brickbats have somewhere to land. You know, they've got mm-hmm. okay. landing in fearfulness and okay. fearfulness. They, they're landing into some sort of peaceful, peacefulness. Yeah. Uh, and I and mean, there's, space around, there's space around it. Normally, if you're operating from the personal self, the brickbats land into an already brittle environment and then the mind goes crazy trying to solve mm-hmm. it or deal with it. So there's very little space. There's just, you know, I've been hit with a brickbat and my mind's going crazy. And then the alternative is that the brickbats land into a more spacious, more peaceful, more resonant environment, and there's more space around it so you can see what the solution might be more yeah. easily. And the whole thing kind of, it doesn't need to up, up, uh, uproot you. It doesn't need to unseat you, if you like, because there's already, you know, an, enough substance there to be able to, you know, to kind of handle it, if you like. Not that it's it's not... Not that life is not endlessly challenging mm-hmm. and not that finding, you know, the truth of your own being solves all the problems. Of course it doesn't. You know, in the human realm, how we, we, we are always going to, to suffer and to have to, you know, face challenges and what have you. But it's a hell of a lot easier. It's definitely, you know, a lot easier. And I think also because 
you're grounded somewhere in a very supportive place. It's not even a place, but you know, um, there's a fullness there that, that supports and protects you. And, and often you can see trouble coming a mile away. So, you know, you make sure that you, you, you create an external life that, that, that is as, you know, trouble free, you know, you, you stay out of trouble as much as possible using, using what, what, what you know, what, what you intuit and what you understand. So it seems it seems like, from what I hear you saying, that the when something lands, when an experience lands, the spaciousness is a spaciousness where we have choice. We 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 can choose how to respond as opposed to the you know a more contracted situation where a response is just sort of a mechanical consequence of the stimulus that's impinging i mean much more so i mean i think there are always you know on on the surface level there are always kind of emotional and and mental responses to to something coming at you you know to something happening like that but they don't necessarily need to or always disturb what goes on at a deeper level so Mm -hmm. i agree with what you said yeah yeah for sure so, so the question of stabilization is an interesting one in that uh, there was a point where you were aware of making a choice and stabilization, I, I, w- I guess I would take that to mean that um, if we were to say that the center of gravity was moving to this deeper uh, unchanging self that uh, statistically in the transition period it might have not. Have, it might have been fifty-fifty uh, going to sixty-forty, going to seventy-thirty, uh, or something along those lines. Is that is that kind of what you mean by that? That um, I think so. I think um, uh, I think once I'd made that decision, I, I knew that. Sorry, I knew that I was I was going to hold to that ground. Mm-hmm. I knew I was. I, I knew I was not ever going to go back. Once I'd made that that choice, that choice was locked in in time for me. Um, but at the same time, the momentum of the personal self is incredibly strong, you know, and, and, and diabolical in its determination to remain, if you like. Mm-hmm. And so um, all the things that we've been talking about, like the sense of spaciousness where things can land, was still very um, new, if you like. And so if something happened, the, per- the, origin- the initial reaction would be from the personal self, if you like. So it took a long time for that center of gravity to really assert mm. and take up all the space. It was really a question of it just increasing in, in stability and taking up more and more of my space. So, I, I'm sorry, go ahead, finish. And I, work, I worked for that. I worked, you know, I, I, I made it my, my focus, if you like, if I saw that I had slipped back or slipped out, that I would, you know, just re- I would, it would be a, a, a tuning, a constant tuning. Mm. And so for a number of years, um, I had to protect that choice and had to give attention to to remaining in that, you know, in that, with that anchor. So, so, uh, so what I'm hearing you saying, and this was the question I was going to ask, is um, how you supported that, that reaffirming of that choice. And, and it sounds like, what I'm hearing you say is is your experience was that 
was that um, simply reasserting or maybe even first recollecting that there was a choice to make and then and then returning to that confident determination that that's who you were going to be um, was the way that you created the process of developing stabilization is that is that is that fair uh, or not not quite right uh i think for me it was probably more that uh the difference between the two was very acute so that it, if i was if, if i had kind of landed back in a kind of personal space if you like it was very uncomfortable and quite suffocating mm-hmm. it became very clear to me what these different aspects were so when i was grounded in the truth of my own being it was like oh, you know thank god and then if i slipped out it was very very clear to me and i i made sure i got back as soon as i could that that words are clumsy but i think you probably get get the yeah it was, yeah i mean i i'm reminded of i mean in the some of the fourth way language um one uh, the, the uh, characterization of this is that is is simply remembering remembering yeah i think that's a that's the, that self remembering i think that's a perfect like remembering i think that's exactly right absolutely right absolutely right so so one question i wanted to ask you about this process that you're describing so clearly is in some particularly in the advaita vedanta tradition um to some extent in some tibetan traditions there's a the notion of like pointing to this deeper self pointing to the knower the uh the knower that's always present behind the uh contents of experience and i think this is even to the extent that i understand it formalized in tibetan as pointing pointing out exercises uh some advaita vedanta teachers and their enthusiasm suggests that um that alone is like sufficient that that pointing and sort of returning to that is sufficient to affect this kind of um transformation you're describing and i'm interested you know when there's 30 years of practice leading up to the ability to make a choice um uh and talking to you i don't think it's because you're a slow student <laughs> <You know? laughs> i didn't think i was a very good student well but but i mean i you know if i if i look at to um in my own arc in my uh spiritual training i i wouldn't say that i have had a dramatic you know for me it, it sort of presents more as a gradual uh uh process but that's that's just a I, but what i'd say is that it it still has that kind of time frame associated with it you know in other words uh, in in terms of like decades of kind of a, a certain kind of work or a certain kind of uh inquiry and even even with uh uh some of the what i'd call the more interesting advaita vedanta teachers there's the notion of well you see it but then there's the tantric work which is actually put, bringing it into your life and so I, i guess i i i just wanted to clarify in this discussion with you that uh it's although there was a choice that was made uh if that choice had presented itself to you like 30 years previously would would that even have been a possibility 
I think that's a very good question. I think if my training had been more along the lines that we've spoken about, you know, this um, very clear delineation between the different aspects of ourselves, the true self and the lesser self, however you want to describe it. I think if, if my training had given me a good grounding, I might have been able to make that switch 30 years ago. But mm. I actually doubt it. I doubt it because I was so identified with the personal self. And there was still so much uh, life that needed to be lived. And I think so many psychological sort of neuroses that had to be dealt with, you know, if you're yeah. constantly distracted by your own um, in, interior machinations, uh, you, you can't make those sorts of choices and have them stick, if you like, because you're going to be constantly distracted by your, your own in, interior neuroses or by your desires for the outside world. So as a much younger person, I still had far too many desires and wants and fears and, and internal neuroses that, that I had to come to terms with or play out or live out or, or resolve for myself. So I think maturity has a lot to do with it. You know, mm -hmm. the, the maturity of the organism, if you like, has a lot yeah. to do with it. So, so that leads me to, to ask, um, um, Despite your uh, describing being burned out at the end of your 30 years, understandably, um, uh, it's, it also sounds like your relationship to your neuroses really shifted during that period. And can we conclude, or at least in, uh, tentatively infer, that your acts of surrender to to the, the teaching or the teacher or what, whatever you did took you out of those neuroses and changed your relationship to them? No. No, they okay. hung in in spite of all the surrender. They, they managed to endure, you know. <laughs> well, uh, that's not exactly what I'm, that's not exactly my question, so I probably didn't phrase it correctly. I'm saying that um, that the experience of trying to surrender them right. um, created a different relationship to them, such that you could then actually uh, frame your issue in the way that you've described between the incredibly suffering individual self and the stable, um, real self? I mean, I think, Rob, for me, the only real change came after that shift of identity. The, the, the neuroses really hung in there throughout all mm -hmm. those years mm -hmm. of surrendering practice and so on. I mean, they, they may have become less so as I matured and worked on myself and, and uh, you know, had different kinds of help with groups and so on. But the, the fundamental and significant change where really that the, the, the person who, who, who wore those neuroses or who inhabited mm -hmm. those neuroses or what have you, it wasn't until that unit somehow faded into the background that also the neuroses kind of faded into the background as well. Right, but you're, uh, I'm, not, I'm still not making myself clear. Oh, I'm sorry. Because, because no, no, no. Um, uh, 
I take that responsibility. <laughs> um, so, so it's not that the um, neuroses themselves changed. It's your relationship to them that you could then change. So um, that's why I, I, I suspect you're right when you say that even with a more skillful presentation of the distinction between um, these two aspects of your life, um, at a younger age, you might not have been able to effectively make the shift that you did, make the choice yeah. that you did, precisely because of the momentum. And what I'm suggesting is that all this Sturm und Drang, all this, all this uh, turmoil with teachers, and, and, and I'm, I'm including here not just the, the difficult moments with your, your teachers and teaching, but your um, ecstatic moments, all of that, I'm suggesting, may have contributed to a capacity to disassociate or disidentify or disidentify perhaps a better word um, from those when when you ripened to use a word that our our friend our mutual friend Amir has uh, suggested does that does that make sense I'm a little bit lost i have to admit let, let, let me let me try a different uh attack on oh, it's just, it's my my failing no 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 there's no failing there's, there's no failing there's absolutely in this round there there can be no failing yeah, and language a, language is a poor tool to um to paint a picture um in this way but we're doing the best we can yeah in these subtle matters so i'm so the model that was coming up for me about this, as we were describing, um, I sort of fall back on my fourth way framework, which um, you know talks about the mental sphere, the the feeling sphere, the emotional sphere, and the body sphere. And I think the what the way I would express this for myself is identification, the process of identification with the uh, persona is an emotional center function mm -hmm. the energy comes from the heart it's a it's a uh, a deep kind of identification the challenge is that a lot of times when we're presented with clean distinctions about the knower and the known and things like that 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 that's hitting the uh, intellectual center and so one can have a, a wonderful model but uh the language and the uh, uh, and the experience at the emotional center is is a different different category. So it may help in one sense, but it's not an automatic pass to uh, solving this problem because, as you described, the tidal forces of identification are extremely strong. Mm -hmm. And I think what I heard Rob asking was the dynamic extremes of your experience in your uh, different spiritual uh, situations that you were in, you know, culminating with the dynamic extremes that Andrew Cohen's community certainly created, was in a way uh, playing with the 
the energy associated with that identification such that there was uh, a a flexibility that was born out of that kind of experience. Whether you knew it or not yeah, whether you knew at it or the not. time. Or whether you would have even articulated it to yourself or not. It, it, yeah. Like, in other words, like if I'm, if I'm, it's, it's sort of like I can, I can lift boulders every day and I may not be aware that I'm growing muscles, but. Yes, 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 very likely, very likely. But I do have to come back at the risk of seeming stubborn. Yeah. To the, <laughs> Please. That, that fundamental um, uh, falling away of those neuroses, if you like, mm-hmm. where instead of them imposing themselves on my whole life, to where they really, you know, they're, they're pretty well non-existent, really only happened when that shift of identity yeah. happened. Well, well, sure. You can, you can fine-tune them. You can get to a point where, you know, you know you're reasonably neurosis-free, and that's great. But you're still within the parameters mm-hmm. of that contracted self. So you, you haven't solved the riddle yet. The riddle, right. even, though, even though you're modifying, you're, you're modifying that personal unit, if you like, and perfecting it, you haven't come, you haven't escaped it yet. You have, you haven't replaced it yet. It's still operating. It's just operating better. Well, I mean, it, you know, to return to what Stuart pointed to earlier, so he um, he cited our own teacher Robert Daniel Ennis, who would who would say that your neuroses are are in fact. Um, you're, you're, they're few, he'd, he'd call them fuel, but they're also your friends because they won't, as, as in your case they were, because they would not let you get away with smoothing things out. Right. And being in the maelstrom of, of, a, of, a, of, a, of a, you know, a spiritual community can, can, can help you know maintain that so, so and this this is a this is an important point because uh, uh and here's here's my here's my concern because you you expressed it and uh, uh so maybe I'll, I'll get on get on my uh uh platform now or something which is yeah, that are you sure you haven't always been already yeah, been on it <laughs> <laughs> you know me all too well uh, and and that's it um you know, sometimes in the spiritual world, there's a movement to make everything nice and easy. The bypassing. Yeah. Well, yeah, uh, by, yeah bypassing is one form of that. But I even mean like, uh, 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 how do I put it? The extremes and the struggle, in a sense, uh, uh, create that a, a kind of necessity that doesn't exist if you are able to deal with your neuroses and make everything all very comfortable, but never have the necessity to break out of the context of identification with the individual self. Yes, completely with you, completely with you both in that, yes, yes. And that's why, it's one of the reasons that uh, uh, your story was so attractive to us in the sense of wanting to talk to you is that uh, you describe uh, a kind of a, a pressure cooking situation that did not give you the option to do anything other than a complete yes. choice. And, and I don't think it's a coincidence that as soon as you left that, all of a sudden, 
the uh, uh, the water was on the boil. and with the result that you have described. So, so, so I, so the, the, I was not trying to assert that you had, that you had along the way, um, smoothed over your neuroses. Anything in about any, it. <laughs> yeah, it, it, in fact, they had been, you know, uh, limbed more clearly. No, I understand you. I think better now, Rob. No, that's actually okay. the friction, the in, the internal friction of those is actually firstly what what got me into spiritual life in the part of what got me into spiritual life in the first place to find a solution to one's inner discomfort and inner um, un, un togetherness, if you like. And then as that as that went through, that 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 continued to be the case until it reached a critical point where I could not rest until I had solved. The fundamental dilemma. So no, right. I, 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 I hear you. I hear you. Yeah, I mean, I, it's you know, and the other point I want to make about this is, you, you know, you you pointed to uh, to your friend who who had apparently a less uh, had less turmoil about um, a similar sort of uh, interior transformation, but but. Um, the older I get, the more it seems to me that everyone's path is so in so stupendously uniquely original um, that um, there's no there's no um, there's no optimal yeah. there's no optimal way to deal with this. We we come here with our apparently with into these bodies with a set of um, predispositions or or karmic habits or however whatever language we want to use, and we have to, we have to uh, grapple with it. Yeah. And and I, I think I have to be. I mean, I'm just seeing in, in this conversation that I, I I have to be careful with my own uh, assumptions. That you know, even in Andrew's community, Andrew Andrew could be very brutal and honest, and there were lots of shocks and lots of ups and downs and things like that. But that in and of itself wasn't a guarantee that uh, uh, someone would uh, crack out of the uh, uh, the uh, identification, however subtle, with the persona. And also what can happen and what did happen was that kind of brutality could also be very damaging and put people back decades sometimes, you know, yeah. because the delicate flower of the willingness to open to something different and engage in a, in a, in a way that you, you know, you, you need to be able to take some risks, um, just got crushed, you know. So so it has to be it has to be handled so carefully, you know, by a very, very skillful operator if you're dealing with people. Well you I couldn't agree with you more. And this is one of the areas where when I talked when I was talking earlier about um how the engagement of Asian spiritual paths in uh, with Western students, um, how how many mistakes we've made, and how many mistakes the Asian teachers have have made, or Asian influenced teachers have made. So um, so I think we're, you know, I, I see I see uh, um, some large shifts happening these days. It's a very different spiritual scene nowadays. 
in the West than it was 20 years ago or 30 years ago and certainly 40 years ago. So um, I'm wondering if, uh, uh, before I go on to say any more about that, I'm wondering if you have any particular observations about that. I mean, nothing in particular, but I, I mean, when I came through the Osho thing, it was the, the rise of the, simultaneously of the personal development movement, especially yeah. in California, you know. And some of those early programs were just hell. I mean, I did primal therapy and, you know, they were, it was just a nightmare. You know, you're lucky if you survived <laughs> some of those groups. And uh, there's been a lot of refinement. And also, you know, the, the, you know, so the Zen hitting with the stick and all of there, there was a... Um, a kind of a lack in the translation to a different, you know, a whole different geographical and, and cultural place, if you like. And so there, mm -hmm. there, there, I think there's been a lot of refinement since then. Um, I don't know if, I think spirituality, you know, through yoga and what have you, spirituality seems to become very popular, um, but it also seems to be on a pretty superficial level if you like and i think as always um there are very few really serious dedicated practitioners who are who are willing to go through what's often a tumultuous journey to find right. what they're looking for i think that's maybe true in every in every era i'm hoping that there's um more sophistication and more understanding of the of the ways to bring people to that um, I, I, I look around sometimes at the spiritual world and I weep, you know, <laughs> just weep because there's so much that just seems so wrong and so out of alignment with anything. You know, someone has a, a realization or a semi-realization and, and that makes them a guru. They put out their awning and start to give satsang with no anything, no knowledge of how to do that, you know. Um, so I think... I think the spiritual field has become very broad. I don't know if the quality has necessarily improved. Um, but as always, there are these very fine teachers and very fine students in the minority um, in every era. And, uh, and I, that's the case, you know, I, the case now, I'm, 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 I'm pretty sure. So I don't so, know. Yeah. So, so, so here's, here's another question for you. Uh, you know, there are historical there's the guru model that you just alluded to. And then there's at least some variants of the Sufi model where, where you have um, an intimate relationship with maybe one or two, maybe just one, maybe two or three, or a small group of, of people. And, and perhaps even models that we're starting to understand from from various native traditions around the world, where 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 neither of those really applies, neither of those models um, really applies. So I guess, given your own um, engagement with spiritual work and and your recent, um, you know, as I alluded to, you you started to speak about this in online um, um, contexts. I'm wondering um, how you understand the ways in which there's a responsibility of someone who has, for example, made the choice, choice and stabilized the choice that you have described 
in terms of how you would present yourself to the world. It could be a secret Sufi and you just treat people with um, full dignity and respect and with the occasional um, needle, perhaps, or as Gurdjieff would put it, step on a corn, um, or some other, or some other way of um, like a more explicit. Uh, yeah, some some modality. other some other. Well, I mean, I I don't know, but um, but but I, I think we're all gro- so many so many people in the spiritual scene are are groping with how to proceed at this point. And I'm wondering if you have some some insights or um, ideas that you'd like to share. Um, I'm wondering if the guru model, getting back to the first part of your question, if the guru Mm -hmm. model has had its day. I think that relationship Mm -hmm. is inherently fraught, you know, because of the power dynamic and the possibilities for abuse and for also for the disciple, you know, to give away so much of themselves in order to hopefully get something. And usually they, they just get 20 or 30 years of hard labor, you know, with very little reward. So I, 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 I'm really questioning that model. And I really, I'm really hoping that we've evolved, you know, um, as a species to the point where we don't need to do it that way. Okay. Um, I really like uh, the, the possibility really intrigues me that, that, that there could be, you know, um, loose groupings of people who can, can function, as you mentioned, with the Sufis as mentors, as helpers, and um, you know they're they're simply available, and I would be happy to be someone who's available. I I would never. I'd, I'm not a teacher. I don't have a teaching. I don't have a uh, a tradition behind me that can uh, endorse me or not, or guide me, you know, or keep me mm-hmm. straight, you know. So I would never throw myself into the marketplace, you know, as an unqualified person. I I. I've realized myself, if you like, that doesn't give me any qualifications to do anything other than to have these sorts of discussions and to to offer whatever it is that someone might ask of me, you know, which I will happily give, which I would very happily give. So for there to be a way that the focus is not placed on one person as the all-knowing, you know, I think it's interesting that you ask me these questions, these different questions, and I have no more insight necessarily than anyone else. Just because I know myself doesn't mean I know anything else, you know. Mm-hmm. So I'm just giving you a normal person's perspective, not a, not any grand perspective in these things. But I think it would be wonderful to have uh, have people who are resources who have discovered something that it, it may be of value to other people, and 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 they're available. They're just available without all the trappings and all the rest of it, I think would be an improvement perhaps on on some of the systems we have available now. At the same time, you know, the traditions are very important. So I don't quite know how how to make all of that work. You know, the traditions come with with centuries of fine tuning and refinement of the truth and experience, you know, of what works and what doesn't work. And the subtleties, the, we're, we're dealing with areas that have tremendous subtlety, you know, so, so you wouldn't want to lose all of that. Um, but I think, you know, in some way, yeah, there could be a different, there could be different modes of exploration. 
Well, thank thank you for that. But I also want I also have to say that um, I'm 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 not going to ex accept entirely the the expression of humility of you're just an ordinary person. Of course, you're just an ordinary person, as we all are, and you're an ordinary person who had 30 years of uh, intense experience in pursuit of spiritual development. You have. Um, made this um, shift that that we've been discussing at length here um, today and um, and that means that um, it's you are you are a potential resource yeah. so not just an ordinary person an ordinary person with perhaps some extraordinary resources is it will you accept that one uh, I I thank you, Rob. I, I appreciate that. <laughs> okay. so, so, yeah, who's pushing back? <laughs> That's what I want to know. <laughs> uh, and I also would say that, and I think it's very important as we draw to the close of this discussion, that in a world today where there is so many spiritual teachings available for the asking, one click away on the Internet, what I find refreshing about the conversation we've been having is that when it's expressed in an authentic language without uh, fancy terminology and things like that, but really is speaking just from the heart of one's direct experience, that there's a power that comes through to that that I think uh, conveys a lot. And, you know, the because there's so much availability now that, you know, the good the good news is you have every spiritual teaching that ever was available at your fingertips. The bad news is you have every spiritual teacher of it, a teaching that's available at your fingertips. And uh, it's when it's authentic and fresh, uh, you know, it's hard for the mind to kind of get its hooks in. And you just have to deal with uh, what's being presented. And that, and that's, to me, makes the quality of this conversation uh, unusual. And that's, and that's why we appreciate the time you've taken with us. Well, I appreciate being with you both. I've enjoyed it very, very much indeed. And, and it's been very rewarding for me to be able to have this time with you as well. So thank you very much. So well, thank you. Yeah, and we're not, I, we've got a couple minutes left. So I'll, I'll just leave, I have one lasting question, which is, um, uh, and, you know, we have, we probably have about seven minutes. So uh, oh. I'll, I'll give you, I'll, I'll frame that. Um, I'm interested as as an artist how you find that this uh, um, this perspective uh, infuses your work or doesn't. You know, is it like a just a separate category, or do you find that uh, your art, uh, your visual artwork, is uh, a vehicle for the expression of this uh, understanding? Uh, I think that has been my main expression. Um, I, I don't know if you. Uh, if you're aware that I, I really haven't really thought about spirituality for years. It wasn't mm -hmm. until Amir started to you know, stimulate my mind, if you like, that I, I started to, to contribute to his things and, 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 and have these sorts of conversations. So my means of expression has been through, through the artwork to, to, to uh, infuse them with something of that ground of being, if you like, so that they would hopefully activate in the viewer some sense of their own inner ground or inner depth. So the artwork have been the vehicles. And uh, for a number of years, for about 10 years, I was painting these uh, huge tankers, tanker ships, 
mm-hmm. and they were literally vehicles for misunderstanding. That was what mm-hmm. their combo was. So I, I would never make that uh, statement up front in the art world or you get laughed out of the room, you know, if you talk about beauty or spirit or anything like that in the art world, you know, they're far too sophisticated for those sorts of things. Um, but literally those, the tanker ships, you know, were, were the vehicles to convey, to convey um, the sacred. So that mm-hmm. was that the artwork. Had. Well, I'm wondering if there, if, if there's like a, a website where some of the um, work that you've created could be viewed online or not. Yeah. Uh, well, yes. Yeah, I think we have those links. I'll put them with the uh, podcast oh, great. so that people okay. can uh, find them. Yeah. Fabulous. Well, wonderful. Well, uh, Anne, thank you so much. I mean, it's been a uh, uh, a very enjoyable ride to uh, you know through uh, 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 your both your story, but your just the clarity of your articulation. It's it's uh, 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 very, as I said, very refreshing because uh, it's a you tell tell the story in a completely unpretentious language and and that and that that allows it to go much more deeply into the heart of the listener i appreciate it very much what you both saying and i appreciate what you're doing in this forum for uh disseminating all of these kinds of ways of thinking and being so thank you again well thank you and i hope we have occasion perhaps we can have a a four-person conversation sometime. Oh, yeah, with a mirror. That would be fun. That would be fabulous. I would yeah. really like that. I'd love that. Okay. Yeah, that, that would be okay. a, lot, a lot of fun. And, uh, yeah, if we ever uh, are allowed to travel again, we've been to Sydney a couple <laughs> yeah. times in yeah. our lives and really yes, love it. Yes, but right now, uh, <laughs> United States citizens are persona non grata yes, for right. reason around the world. <laughs> so hold your horses. But then yes. you have <laughs> the time will come. All the best to you both. Same to you. Thank you so much. You have been listening to The Mystical Positivist. This is your host, Stuart Goodnick. This week on the show, we featured a pre-recorded conversation with Anne Sweet, a Sydney-based artist and spiritual exemplar of living in the world from a point of view of transcendence. We discussed Anne's background of deep spiritual practice with a number of well-known teachers, the crisis that led her to make a decision to shift her sense of identity from her personal narrative to that within which remains unchanging, and how Anne has come to integrate this mode of being into her life in the world. Thank you for joining us once again for The Mystical Positivist. Podcasts of all our shows can be found at www.mysticalpositivist.blogspot.com, as well as commentary and discussion of topics of interest to the show. Also, please send comments and feedback to mysticalpositivist at gmail.com and join us again next Saturday.